Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Trojan fans, welcome to the Parastyle Podcast on a Thursday. It's the holiday week between Christmas and New Year's. We wanted to get a show in for you guys. I'm back from the East Coast for my uh, little vacation away. And I've got Gerard Martinez on the line. Follow him on Twitter at GMartLive, USCFootball.com, National Recruiting Analyst. And we're going to do a special show for you today. Kind of a year in review. Looking back at the USC football team, the program, what went on, a lot went on in 2021 so we're going to look back at all that some of the key dates and news items that happened throughout the year maybe refresh your memory some of the stuff are probably fresh fresh in your mind but some of the stuff you won't even remember happened uh when i went through it myself you're like oh yeah that happened uh but we'll go over that for the last year if you have any questions or comments for the show podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address or you can call us or text us at 424-254-9141 and then of course over on the apple podcasting app if you have that on any of your Apple devices, if you would leave us a five-star rating, it would be very helpful. We appreciate that. Any comments, feedback, suggestions you have over there, we do appreciate it. We appreciate Gerard Martinez joining the show. I know he's got crazy nieces and nephews and stuff running around his house. I think he's in his car right now recording this one, but he's dedicated to the cause, so he's here on the show. Gerard, thanks for coming on, man. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, just... Uh... Trying to beat the weather. Um, it's uh, cold and dreary in Southern California. We haven't had a run of weather like this in a long time. I guess it's seasonal, so I'm not necessarily complaining so much, but uh, certainly a little different for us uh, that are used to those 82-degree Decembers that we have in Southern California most years. Yeah, it's good like this is a dead period right now, right? So no recruiting dead period. No one's visiting campus right now from uh, Michigan going, wow, it sucks here too. <laughs> <laughs> that's the master plan you put some snow on the mountains and then it clears out in january and you get mid-70s and everything is beautiful and picturesque yeah it's a good plan um but it did work out usc's last uh that weekend when they had official visitors it was nice and pretty much since then it's been kind of crappy weather here in southern california now we're gonna get a lot of sympathy uh yeah i was just in massachusetts and we had sleet and we got a little snow the day before christmas so it was nice to get a little white christmas thing but um yeah rainy cold i mean it's been raining for like 24 hours here at least right now so it's uh this never happens in southern california very very rarely but uh you know what i tell you what uh the ants knew it was coming uh i had ants in my freaking house in november and i and it just kept popping up everywhere and i'm going where am i getting these ants i don't i don't usually have ant issues and when i mean ants i don't mean relatives I mean, actual insects. They were in the house, popping up in the bathroom, and just random places all the time. And I actually said right then and there, I wonder if we're going to have a wet winter because they seem to sort of be ahead of the curve on these type of things. And I don't know how they know it. I don't know how you can be beneath the ground and know that the weather is going to be wet. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but literally about a month before uh, we really got any kind of rain, the ants were already trying to move into my house. So uh, we, we might need to look into that. Uh, we've been, the ants may have uh, some answers to uh, the future of uh, not only weather, but other things that are happening 
uh, on the face of the earth that uh, we, we just are not clued into. You put up on the Channel 5 News weather forecast team, like they had to say it's going to rain. It's like your corn is hurting. Uh, <laughs> Grandma's corn's hurting. It's going to rain. Um, but it's raining. You can look outside and you can tell it's really wet here. Uh, before we jump into the year in review, I wanted to, to uh, thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's, another great year working with TJ's. Uh, they've been totally awesome. Make sure you check out their float in the uh, Rose Parade if you're going to check that out. But I just went in and did my shopping the other day because I was out of town. So my fridge was empty. So I bought a whole bunch of stuff at Trader Joe's. And I, you know, growing up in the East Coast, Gerard, holidays were there was a lot of holiday traditions with cookies and, you know, hams and turkeys and things like that. Here in Southern California and, you know, people like Latinos, like they love the, the tamales, right? Like, and I don't want, I want to say it correctly for the, uh, you know, the, the, the Spanish speaking people, but yeah, tamales are like a big deal as far as uh, holidays go. And I'm like, you know what? I've had tamales before, but I never really had them on the holiday. So I went in and Trader Joe's and actually I asked, uh, Carlos, who's a UCLA guy over at the, um, no truck stops podcast. Cause he was talking about them and he says it in a very cool way that I cannot say tamales that way. Uh, and I asked him like on, on DMS and he said, you know, he's heard pretty good things about the Trader Joe's tamales. I'm like, Oh good. Cause I want to try them out. I got the pork tamales. They were really good. I, I bought some of that chunky salsa and they have the organic uh, corn chips and, uh, and some of the black beans, black can of black beans, 79 cents. You can't beat that, man. I love the black beans. And, uh, but I got the tamales and they were really good. I've had them for, for lunch the past two days. Um, I don't, are you a big tamale guy, Gerard? Love tamales. Okay. I, uh, at Christmas time. Yeah, that's, that's a tradition. We actually had a huge peristyle thread where everybody was posting, uh, pictures of their tamales at, uh, Christmas time. And, uh, I had, uh, this, uh, this year we went and got our menudo which is, um, you know, sort of a, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, it's like a stew slash soup slash something it has hominy in it and tripe. Uh, some people don't like it. I love it. I was <laughs> raised on menudo in the morning. And so uh, we had that uh, for breakfast uh, for Christmas morning. And that's kind of been a, a little bit of tradition, but it's hard to get good tamales. It's very hard. You even in Southern California, there's a lot of places and you can get them and the masa is just a little too thick or, you know, the pork just isn't right. And you can get sweet ones, you can get pork, you can get chicken, you can get uh, all kinds of different uh, flavors nowadays. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, good tamales are very, very, uh, that's a, that's something that you want to hone in on. So uh, Trader Joe's, I don't think I've ever had tamales from Trader Joe's. So I think I definitely need to go stop by. Check it out. Um, yeah, but I, I love them. So thanks again to Trader Joe's. Another great year working with those guys. Um, appreciate it very much. Uh, all right, Gerard. Well, what to do it. Uh, this actually came from uh, one of the 24-7 sports guys on our podcast channel. We kind of swap ideas and this came up doing a year in review. I'm like, I don't think we've done that before. I'm like, that sounds like fun. Um but then you got to remember everything that happened. So I kind of went through some of the content that was going up just to see. Um, my apologies if I've missed some things. I'm sure that I have. How, how can you not? I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like, okay, that's cool for, you know, Clemson or, or Ohio State or Alabama. And then you have USC, which <laughs> yearly, no matter what's happening, there's all these crazy events. I mean, we always just kind of laugh to ourselves on the beat. At USC, you know, there's never a dull moment. No, there's never a dull moment. There's always something going on. Uh, so I'll, I have this like kind of bullet pointed out, and I'll just read you the date. Uh, we're starting in January of 2021, and we'll go through today, uh, December 30th is when we're recording this. 
And, you know, some of the stuff we can just glance over, but some of the stuff we'll get some some thoughts from you, Gerard, and, and we can kind of weigh in and, and just go through things that way. So hopefully people enjoy it. But we'll start off, if you remember, January 2nd, Corey Foreman, five-star defensive lineman, signs with USC. Actually signed earlier in December, but it was announced at the, the uh, All-Star game, right, that he signed with USC. But that was a big day. That was a huge day. That was, you know, sort of the uh, pinnacle of taking back the West and Dante Williams coming in as an assistant coach, a top recruiter, and USC really trying to once again reestablish that wall around Southern California. You know, they were in jeopardy of losing the best player in California for a third straight year. So that was a big deal, being able to get Corey Foreman and, uh, you know, no official visits. They didn't actually have the NBC All-American game. It was an announcement made just uh, by satellite because they didn't have the kids down there during the pandemic. Uh, But certainly it was sort of, um, I don't know if I would say landmark because, you know, obviously this all happened before Lincoln Riley, but certainly in recruiting it was, hey, you know, we came off with some mediocre years and some bad recruiting years and they were trying to turn it around. And that was sort of the reason why they went out and they got Dante Williams and he delivered. I mean, he delivered, and, and he was a big part of that recruitment for Corey Foreman, uh, five-star out of Corona Centennial. Yeah. All right. The very next day, January 3rd, USC parts ways with Tim Drevno and Aaron Osmus. Uh, recall that, <laughs> Gerard? They're like – Tim Drevno, obviously the offensive line coach who was originally – he was previously the running back coach, and then, you know, Clay Helton promoted him. Uh, but when he promoted him, you had an air raid system with Graham Harrell – and, uh, you know, that was obviously Tim Drevno wasn't really a spread kind of guy. So that was a weird one. Uh, so he's finally let go. And then they let uh, Aaron Osmus go as well. So they were on the in, on the market for a new offensive line coach and strength and conditioning coach. Yeah, it just seemed like too little too late. The Tim Drevno uh, transition that we talked about. And, and, you know, again, during the Clay Helton era, there was a lot of stuff that it wasn't armchair quarterbacking. It was literally as it's happening or even before it's happening saying, I don't think this is a good idea. This just doesn't sound right. You're, you're bringing in a guy that's an offensive line coach who's been there at Stanford, the 49ers, Michigan under Jim Harbaugh, and you're just going to keep him here bringing in an air raid offense. Wouldn't your offensive line coach have a lot of say and a lot of experience in the system that you're going to run from an offensive standpoint. You're not just going to bring in an offensive coordinator over the top of a guy that's uh, used to running three tight ends <laughs> on the field. And it wore, and, and you know what, again, I'm going to say it and it's probably an unpopular opinion. I think Tim Trevino is a good offensive line coach. I just think it was a horrible fit and Clay Elton should have seen that a mile away. I don't know even why Graham Harrell came to USC and didn't push harder to bring in a guy that had more experience in the air raid offense. No, I agree. It was one of those things where it wasn't always like, oh, in hindsight, there were so many bad decisions that USC made. And you're just like, right when they were made, you're like, why are you doing that? And then, you know, it happens a couple of years later. You see what happened. I mean, it, that started with Tim Drevner when he was the running backs coach, not even the offensive line coach. So he was, he was the running backs coach when he should have been the offensive line coach. And then he was the offensive line coach when he should have been the offensive line coach. But they were like, oh, exactly. the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a situation where they needed to fire Neil Callaway and Jim Drevno, or excuse me, uh, Clay Helton didn't want to do it. His dad's friend, blah, blah, blah. And they brought in Tim Drevno to replace Dylan McCullough, 
I mean, you're going from a guy that's uh, put in, you know, running backs in the NFL from Indiana, guys that ne- nobody ever heard of on the recruiting trail, and he goes on to the Kansas City Chiefs, and we're like, hey, man, that's a that's a great hire that they made. They went out and they got the best guy that had the best resume, and it worked out. The running backs looked good, and then it was, uh, okay, so who's next on the Rolodex? And it was, you know, going after Tim, who I don't think he had coached running back position since he was like at, I don't know, like Idaho State or something really early in his career. It made no sense. They had two offensive line coaches, basically, and they brought in Tim Drevno to sort of be that run game coordinator and he was just coaching a position that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to recruit well at. He didn't have enough guys on his resume that he'd produced to go into the NFL. It was just bad. It just was a bad fit. And then, like we talked about, the transition of making him the offensive line coach, then in a system that he had absolutely no experience in. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up, Elijah Vera Tucker on January 11th was named. Uh, he won the Morris Trophy, if you remember that. Uh, Pac-12 uh, Offensive Lineman of the of the Year. So congrats to Elijah Vera Tucker back then, if you remember. Um, let's see. We had a couple of transfers uh, a couple of days later. January 13th, Katie Nixon transfers in from Colorado, the wide receiver. And then on January 15th, two days later, Keontae Ingram transfers in from Texas. So a couple of transfers. Ingram obviously played a huge role uh, in the season. Nixon not so much. He did catch the last touchdown pass of the year for USC, but he didn't do much else besides that. Yeah, I kind of saw that coming. Didn't really feel like Dede Nixon was going to be a guy that was a guy for USC. It was an interesting transfer because you thought that he was going to see more balls at Colorado. Uh, with Keontae Ingram, that was sort of the first big transfer that USC got, and they really needed it because there wasn't a lot of depth there at running back in USC over the years. It's been absolutely horrible in terms of their running back recruiting depth. They've had to sign two guys or three guys and they were signing no guys. And so they needed some transfers and Keontae Gringram was a good player that they brought in from Texas. Uh, obviously a guy that had been supplanted by Bijan Robinson at Texas. And so that was kind of the first of uh, several uh, Texas transfers that we would see. Uh, let's see. Next up we had uh, January 16th. They announced Robert, Robert Steiner. Would be the head strength coach. I think whatever the name was, I forget what it was. Director of player performance, or the, uh, but he was the assistant coach, uh, assistant strength coach over at um, Notre Dame. And then uh, about nine days later, January twenty fifth, uh, Clay McGuire was hired as the offensive line coach. And then three days or four days later, on January 29th, Seth Dagey promoted uh, to from to the tight end coach. So USC kind of filled out their coaching staff uh, later in January. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, the Clay McGuire hire, it's one of those things that will get lost in the history and the annals of USC football, but that was the hire they really should have made uh, with Graham Harrell originally. We talked about hiring an offensive line coach that has experience within the system that you're running, the scheme, and you saw it. Uh, Even though USC had a really bad year uh, this past season, he clearly was a better offensive line coach for that system and they clearly played better. And even during the season, you know, I'd mentioned it and people were like, we're terrible. How can you say the offensive line is playing better, but it really did play better. I think he just understood the end game for Graham Harrell and, and sort of understood what he was trying to do schematically. And I think that's absolutely crucial for an offense. The offensive line coach has to be plugged in to what the coordinator is doing and the vision and the philosophy of the offensive coordinator. And you just didn't have that in Tim Drevno. Clay McGuire, unfortunately, I think he's a good coach, too, uh, just sort of came in on the end of this thing, and, and obviously uh, it was a little bit too little too late. Yeah, and he, you know, he ended up getting a pretty good job at Washington State. Um, 
So, I mean, I think that was, uh, of all the hires, like, I mean, that was a pretty good one, I thought. Um, you know, just, you know, them bringing him in. Uh, the Obviously, it didn't work out. Uh, the strength and conditioning coach with Robert Steiner. Uh, he's now Clay McGuire. I mean, Clay Helton's strength and conditioning coach down at Georgia Southern. So uh, that was an interesting one. I don't know. I haven't heard about Seth Dagey. I'm not sure where he is. Uh, have you heard anything on him? Or No, he'll probably end up where Graham Harrell. Wherever Graham Harrell goes, yeah. So we'll see with that. Okay. Uh, the next n- notable day, we go into February. February 3rd, it was signing day. Um, USC had let's see the uh nationally ranked uh number seven class for uh 2021 um the number two class in the pac 12 so after previously being 63rd and then this within this latest year is 70th there was a, a, a number seven class mixed in there uh helped having guys like Corey foreman uh rajon davis the linebacker from modern day of course the next two highest guys jackson dart and miller moss the two four-star uh, quarterbacks, and then you have the cornerbacks, say you're right, uh, Julian Simon, another four-star, uh, where Hudson was a, another four-star wide receiver, Michael Trigg was a four-star tight end, Prophet ba- Brown was a four-star corner, Jay Toya, who ends up transferring, we'll get to that a little bit, a four-star uh, defensive lineman, Kalen Bullock, who had a big freshman year, the four-star athlete out of Pasadena, you also had uh, other DBs, uh, Anthony Beavers and Zamian Gordon, Jalen Smith. You got Brandon Campbell, the running back. So there was a bunch of uh, four-star guys in this class. So certainly a little something to be excited about that February 3rd signing day because it was a lot better than uh, the previous couple of signing days. Yeah, again, it was sort of the Take Back the West uh, moniker that was created by Dante Williams, and they did. A very good job recruiting. I mean, they got ahead of it early, uh, had a really good defensive back class kind of early on going into summer, and they were able to just kind of build it throughout the year. Again, no official visits. Uh, You had a whole new defensive staff that really wasn't able to talk to these kids very much in person. Um, It was a lot of Zoom calls. It was a lot of awkward sort of, okay, you know, how's your relationships building with these people that you've never sat face-to-face with? Um, but USC did a, a great job at that. I mean, they did a great job, I think, really hitting home. Hey, you want to stay closer to home. You want to stay closer to your family during these very uncertain times. Uh, the pandemic, um, the lockdown on travel early on. There was a lot of stuff going on, and I think they really just hit home on stay home. Uh, you can go to a great school, and uh, we're going to turn this thing around. And, you know, USC did have that short season where they went 5-1, and one, which – you know, from a, a superficial standpoint, just on the surface, uh, looked like a very good year for them. And so USC, I think, was able to close out, and that was really big for them, um, being able to have uh, some football and being able to sort of showcase something uh, in the terms of uh, getting traction and progression with the team. And from that short season, it sort of looked like maybe they had sort of gotten their footing in Clay Helton uh, was going to be able to, you know, get another run at potentially a Rose Bowl. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the schedule. So it was a modified schedule in 2020, if you remember, modified twice. And USC goes 5-0 and in the regular season. But March 2nd, so it was significantly delayed, uh, they announced the football schedule for 2021. So it actually was very favorable for USC as far as no uh, you know, weekday games. There wasn't any like back-to-back road trips or things like that. So they announced the schedule then, uh, which is significant because we already know it's still later in 2021. We already know the 2020 
two schedules, so we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, it was a late <laughs> schedule announcement. Um, and then they picked up a transfer uh, later that much, March, March 24th. Taj Washington transfers in from Memphis, and he ended up being uh, playing a significant role this year for USC. Yeah, Taj Washington, I think uh, if they knew they could have got Taj Washington, I don't know if they bring in Katie Nixon, because Taj Washington is what they hoped Katie Nixon would be. Um, fast, great, you know, short area quickness, uh, a guy that I think you know going forward, the – Earmarks of USC having a good offense are really going to revolve around how Taj Washington plays and how Gary Bryant plays. I think those are two very talented players. They've got a lot of speed. They're dynamic, explosive players that USC has to get those kind of big chunk yardage plays out of. And if those guys aren't popping and they don't improve, then you kind of question, okay, well, you know, where's the direction of the offense? Is this thing going to work with Lincoln Riley at USC um, or is it going to be more of the same we saw with Graham Harrell? Uh, so I think those guys are guys that you know you kind of watch and see you know how much are they going to improve. But Taj Washington was a kind of under the radar, really great pickup for USC for Memphis. Yeah, man, quick feet. It was fun to watch him uh, in some of those practices. Uh, all right, then later that month, March 30th, we saw the beginning of USC spring football. So obviously they weren't able to do it uh, the year before because of the pandemic. So they actually had spring football, and then even on March on April 12th. They opened up practices to the public so people could come watch. And then on the 17th, they had the spring showcase in the Coliseum. Um, they did a few practices after that, too. But uh, the, if you remember that showcase, Stephen Carr scored in that one. Significant because he wasn't around for the rest of the season, but Stephen Carr scored. Um, we also got to see um, some uh, some extended Miller Moss uh, struggling a little bit because he was on a, a team with uh, Mo Hassan, who ended up uh, blowing out his knee in that game. And so they, and they didn't really have a lot of good receivers on that side. But uh, the Keaton Slovis Jackson dart side had Drake London, and I think that significantly helped uh, them. But any kind of anything standing out from spring football for you, Gerard? Yeah, Jay Toya had a great game. Oh, yeah, Jay Toya did too. We'll talk about him as well. <laughs> uh, that's what I remember from this spring game for what was to follow. Yeah, after the uh, spring game and stuff. Yeah, so there was uh, some significant things uh, from that. Um, then we got a couple more transfers. Uh, April 23rd, so soon after spring football, Caleb Tremblay transferred out to Tennessee. And then uh, four days later, April 27th, Malcolm Epps transferred in from Texas. So from one guy leaving for a UT, another guy coming from a UT. Yeah, that's uh, Malcolm Epps was a guy that was really hyped by the coaching staff um, later on when we talked to him about fall camp. Never really seemed to make a big impact for USC during the season. Uh, big body, guy that was a former receiver, um, certainly a true tight end now. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he's able to play in this new office because it's an office that, you know, on paper, certainly at Oklahoma, has utilized the tight end uh, much more. Uh, in the passing game, and uh, they've had some pretty good tight ends. So USC's got some decent talent at the tight end position. And uh, so we're going to see, is, is it still going to be sort of this hybrid thing where you're going to have two tight ends spread wide, um, or are you going to actually uh, put these guys in, in line and have them be traditional-type tight ends and try to uh, work against the linebackers um, straight up the field? So we'll see. I mean, Malcolm Epps does have some talent, uh, but he's a guy that we expected a lot more. If you just listen to the coaching staff at the fall camp, uh, we kept 
trying to talk about Mike Trigg because we knew Mike Trigg from um, playing at a high school level, and, and I was very high on him and just thought, wow, this is a guy that really could be dynamic if, uh, you know, you utilize uh, Drake, you know, Drake London and you've got Gary Bryant and you're just thinking, okay, you can get up the field. You know, this guy's going to be hard to guard one-on-one, but, you know, Malcolm X kept coming up, Malcolm X. So um didn't happen last year, and uh, we did see Mike Trigg uh, here and there, some some splashes from him. Uh, so we'll see, you know, how the tight end is, is actually utilized going forward with this new offense. Yeah. Uh, April 29th, a couple of days later, Elijah Vera Tucker was picked in the first round, heading down to uh, Miami. I think it was the 17th pick. I didn't write it down. I wrote something like that. Um, then it was kind of a lull, and then four more guys went on day three. But that was the big one, Elijah Vera Tucker going in the first round. Yeah, and that was, I mean, a big reason why they were able to go 5-1 and one was that they were able to make that move of Elijah Vera Tucker playing guard going to left tackle. USC has dropped the ball in terms of offensive line recruiting, and they've gone several cycles without getting someone who's a legitimate franchise left tackle. And so you had Austin Jackson there, and you knew that there was just not going to be another guy that was going to step into his place that they had that they recruited, and so they were able to move Vera Tucker there, and he played really well. And that obviously helped his draft status. Um, I thought that would be something that would help them in the transfer porthole. Uh, they were going to be able to go in there and grab a guy after they had demonstrated that they'd had two guys that gone in the first round of the NFL draft that were left tackles. That didn't really happen. Uh, but Vera Tucker was um, sort of a, a, a patch there. Um in the rotation of players that they had to play left tackle. And obviously we've seen uh, with that past year uh, under Clay Helton slash Dante Williams, the uh, the lack of talent that they've been able to recruit at the offensive line. And they didn't have anybody yeah. on the interior that they could just slide over to play left tackle uh, that could help them this past season. And it, and it really showed. Yeah, it did. And that, you know, hiring their offensive line coaches as late as they did, they sort of missed a lot of the windows for the transfer porthole as Gerard likes to say. So, um, yeah, they didn't get that, but, uh, May and June, not a lot of news outside of transfers. We did learn on June 15th that the Coliseum games were going to be at full capacity. So that was, uh, there were some good news there. We knew that they were, you know, you'd be able to attend fans could attend. Uh, we, you know, found out, you know, you could tailgate and all that kind of stuff, just limited capacity, but the, the stadium itself was going to have full capacity, but I'll go over the transfers, uh, from May and June. So May 4th. Chris Thompson Jr. transfers in from Auburn. May 11th, Stephen Carr transferred out. He ended up at Indiana. May 26th, big surprise, you already mentioned, Jay Toya transfers out, and he goes to UCLA. Then in June, June 14th, Darwin Barlow, the running back from TCU, transferred into the program. Uh, And on uh, June 22nd, Jake Smith also transferred in from Texas, the wide receiver, which was funny that when he entered the transfer portal, I don't even think, USC fans were thinking he would come to USC, but they're like, oh, it's Texas guy hit the portal. He's probably going to come to USC. Oh, and he did. <laughs> so any thoughts on those uh, tr- that group of transfers, Gerard? Well, just the Jay Toya drama and weird sort of circumstances of, you know, hearing that he didn't want to really leave USC and that um, his uncle, quote unquote, was pushing him to leave. And he had told everybody that, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to go and then ends up at UCLA and then hearing a lot of stuff that compliance wise, he wasn't going to be able to play at UCLA. 
and then he played at UCLA first game of the season. I still don't have clarity on all of that and, and how that went down and why he was eligible to play when he didn't come out of the COVID year. He didn't have like a waiver year. Um, it just, it, I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a bad precedent, honestly, for all these transfers. Uh, seeing a guy in spring ball play for one team and play well as a true freshman and then turn around and, and, and like a month later, he ends up at the Crosstown rival. Um, yeah, but uh, he was recruited originally at USC by Johnny Nansen. Johnny Nansen was the defensive line coach at UCLA. And, uh, you know, not even a year later, Johnny Nansen is now left and been the defensive coordinator at Arizona. So Jay Toya is now at UCLA without Johnny Nansen. Uh, we'll see if maybe there's another transfer in line. Uh, very weird circumstances there on how that all went down. But that was the one that really sort of, uh, you know, jumped out because that was an ongoing story that we kept hearing. USC's going to fight it. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And it just, it really amounted into nothing. And um, Jay Toya went to UCLA and he played at UCLA. The Jake Smith thing is interesting just because Jake Smith hasn't played it down. He hasn't really even practiced it down at USC at this point. So we'll see how that goes. He had a lot of injury problems at Texas, but when he was healthy, he was a really dynamic, good receiver. So if he's able to get healthy and, and get on the, the, the track of being able to uh, get some reps and, and play, um, you think he could be an impact guy at USC. But, of course, you know, you could say that about other guys like uh, Solomon Tuialupupu. Uh, you could say that about Ishmael Sopcher. There's guys there that have talent, but you know what? If uh, you can't play, then it doesn't really matter. So um, I think, uh, you know, the old adage is uh, one of your best attributes is uh, being able to contribute, and um, they can't contribute if they're hurt. Yeah, the best ability is availability. Is that the one, something like that? Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and Jake Smith obviously wasn't available. Uh, we'll see if he's able to do it. Darwin Barlow is an interesting one to me because he could play. If Ingram ends up leaving like you think he will, uh, Barlow, I think, could play a significant role. Uh, he's looked good to me out there. I'm, I I like the yeah, way he played. I think, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I was looking at him thinking, okay, Matt Campbell might be the head coach at USC, and, and you're sort of watching their offense. You're going, yeah, Darwin Barlow could definitely play uh, and be a, a, a factor with, with that offense. And now – you have Lincoln Riley, and they've had successive uh, good running backs. And, and even though you talk about him coming from the air raid, I mean, the balance that that offense has shown at Oklahoma has really been with the running game and the guys that they've even put in the NFL. And you're not putting guys in the NFL at the running back position unless you're running the football and you're running the football successfully. So uh, I think they certainly want to do that uh, at USC. And I think, um, you know, Darren Barlow is a guy that we've seen very little of, but we liked what we've seen when he's been out in the field. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Next up was, uh, July 27th. Uh, I remember this day pretty well. Pac-12 media day. USC was picked to win the South. Uh, there was a lot of optimism. Drake London, Keen Slovis were the representatives for USC there. Got to hear from Clay Helton. If you remember the, uh, Nick Rolovich fiasco, which was funny. Uh, well, I don't know if it was funny, but it was, you know, all the head coaches are there for the Pac-12, except Nick Rolovich because he was not vaccinated so he was on a zoom call during the um the, the proceedings so that was kind of interesting um uh, but it's always a good chance I, I get to catch up with the national media that shows up and uh kind of see what was was going on there but there was optimism usc was picked to win the south the most talented team obviously it didn't work out that way but i don't know if anything stood out to you from media day gerard nothing ever stands out to me at media day well, you don't it's go, kind of like yeah. uh 
the spring game uh, and, and pro day is was so a couple days there. You're just like, nah, whatever. But you know what? I'm tend to be more recruiting focused. And you glossed over a kind of big deal, and that was the official visits that they had in June. I mean, USC had oh, okay, a good point. All big right. bunch of official visits that come in, and, and that was you know after a year of shutdown and kids weren't able to go on campus and be hosted uh, by college coaches. So that June first was the opening of the recruiting process again, and so USC had a plethora of unofficial visits leading up to uh, four weeks of official visits, and they were able to get a bunch of really good players on campus and, and some of those guys ended up committed some of those guys didn't um, but it was kind of uh, that first wave of you know trying to get back uh, to that uh, top 10 class that they were able to get and it looked like they were going to build some momentum there I think it didn't go quite as well as they hoped um, I think they were trying to come out of that summer with maybe you know a good six eight solid you know four star five star commits and they only really ended up with like three or four. And there was a couple guys there that sort of lingered into the season. And obviously we saw how the season went and then that kind of took momentum away from them completely. Um, but yeah, that was a significant thing there just in June, uh, being able to have official visits again. Okay. Well, that was a, yeah, I forgot. I didn't have that one listed down. So good. There's a, there's one I've already forgot about. Um, also August 6th was the start of USC fall camp. So, uh, you know, significant. You could get all the coaches and everything out there uh, together, kind of checking things out. We learned um, a little bit later in camp, the captains were Drake London, Vivai Malapai, Isaiah Polamau, and Ben Griffith. So uh, no Keaton Slovis as the captain. So that was kind of uh, interesting. But anything from uh, fall camp that off the top of your head you, you remember or want to discuss? Oh, wow. I mean, there was a lot of stuff with fall camp. Uh, we couldn't report on stats in fall camp, so I remember getting reprimanded for that. Because oh, yeah, that was a weird that, one. Uh, Jackson Dart had three interceptions during practice, and you're just kind of like, well, how do we <laughs> report exactly what's going on? I mean, I can give my opinion. Jackson Dart didn't have a very good practice, but people are going to want to know why, and you always want to back those things up with specific statistics to say, you know, you're you're being objective about uh, your opinions are based on something more than just, uh, well, you know, I thought this guy just, you know, threw the ball a little better than the next guy. Uh, so I remember that. And I remember, um, you know, Jackson Dart having some huge big play practices, you know, it's sort of letting his receivers make plays and, and, and Miller Moss being more of that sort of um, manager and being a little more conservative and talking to the quarterbacks about that. And Miller Moss, kind of saying, yeah, you know, Graham Harrell wants me to open it up a little more. You know, he wants me to push it a little more and uh, be a little more of a gunslinger. And so watching those two guys go at it, knowing that Keaton Slovis was going to be the starter, um, not necessarily seeing anything amazing from the offense, uh, not a lot of movement there in terms of the run game. I think they actually ran the ball better during the season than you would have thought watching them in fall camp. You know, it was still looked like it was a struggle for them to be able to, to really be able to run the ball consistently. Um, not that they ran the ball, you know, extraordinarily well during the season, but I think they actually ran the ball better, uh, especially towards the end of the season. Than oh, yeah. they, and they look like they were going to run. I mean, they turned around camp. the like third and short stuff that was awful in 2020 and it, they were good in 2021. So like the, that's why I think the Clay McGuire hire was actually pretty good. Like they, for not a, you know, a great group of offensive linemen, he did a, I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah, no, I think that um, that's definitely going to get lost in the sauce a little bit with everything that went on. Uh, defensively, you know, uh, that struggle of, you know, how, how many physical 
tackling practices are we going to get? You know, how, how, how much are they going to be able to show that uh, they can be physical up front? You knew you had some talent there, uh, but, um, you know, we didn't see the complete just, uh, you know, implosion <laughs> during the season that we saw from the defense in fall camp. You know, I don't know that uh, – obviously it was a different time. I mean, Clay Helton was still the head coach. There was some stability there. It just seemed like, you know, after he was fired, uh, they got progressively worse on the defensive side of the ball. And, um, you know, that was something that uh, you were kind of watching to see how they could progress from from the, the shortened season because they played defense really well during the shortened season. Like, they actually defensively were much better than they were offensively. Offense didn't play well in the shortened season until the last four minutes of every game. So you're kind of thinking, okay, if you can take – from that and you can build upon that this defense could be really good you know you've got some good players here and that just uh, didn't happen during the season so I know fall camp was uh it was interesting you know we were getting back out there and we were you know getting our interviews and and sort of uh, watching the team again and, and, and it was great to be out there just you know with football and and everything kind of getting back to normal to some extent so I guess that's sort of what I remember and what I take from that um but certainly there were there were still those lingering question marks certainly in terms of you know, how they were going to be able to run the ball and how they were going to be able to stop the run and uh, what kind of consistency you were going to have from the offensive line from a pass protection standpoint. Because, like we said, they'd whiffed on uh, quite a few offensive linemen over the years and you didn't have that plug-and-play left tackle like Elijah Barrett Tucker to be able to just scoot over there to left tackle. So you kind of wondered, you know, are we going to see Jackson Dart uh, or Miller Moss this season earlier than we want to because the past few years we've seen a lot of that where USC's been playing freshman quarterbacks not by choice they've been playing yeah. freshman quarterbacks because guys have been getting hurt and sort of that's why Keaton Slovis got his start um, and we kind of wondered are they going to be able to keep him upright this season or are we going to see a lot of Jackson Dart uh, or Miller Moss did you uh have any pause when Keaton Slovis wasn't named a captain it's sort of you know a little bit of red flag but um, I don't yeah, know that was that was interesting. I mean, that was obviously a big deal on the message boards. I mean, a lot of people uh, honed in on that. I, I kind of didn't know what to make of it because I know there's a lot more behind the scenes that goes into something like that. It's always kind of been in the back of my mind that Keaton Slovis was not um, the prototypical quarterback in terms of a guy that wins over the locker room and the press conferences. He's a quiet guy, even as a recruit. He was a guy that there were kids in that class that committed that never really talked to him or knew him. You know, they, they were like, Oh, that guy that, yeah, that one quarterback from, uh, from Arizona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. you're never going to get, you never ever heard that about Miller Moss or Jackson Dart or Mark Sanchez or Matt Barkley. You know, those guys, they walked in the room and everybody knew who they were and, and they made sure that everybody knew who they were. And they were very sort of gregarious and they had that, that temperament. They had that disposition. King Slovis has never, ever been that guy. He's just been quiet. He's just sort of been in the background. And so you kind of wondered, you know, is that is that kind of an issue in terms of leadership? And certainly when he wasn't named captain, you know, I guess that fed into that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into the football season. The fall camp's over. Do we have to? Can we Can we just say it started and it ended? Well, there's some news. I got the game. We don't have to go on the each game, like, too much detail. But I'll mention we can do a couple of things. But there's some other uh, significant uh, news items that happened during the season. So we got to go over those. But September 4th, uh, USC beat San Jose State 30-7 to in the opener. Drake London, uh, his career high at the time, 13 passes, 144 yards. Uh, it was closer than that, though. And Greg Johnson returned a late interception for a touchdown, 37 yards. But 
I don't know. Anything stand out for the San Jose State game, Gerard? I actually thought that San Jose State would keep it closer. I, I thought that was going to be a, a little bit of a struggle for USC until later in the game, and they would open up a little bit, which, which is kind of what happened. But I, I really thought San Jose State was going to be a much better team than they were last year. So I thought that would be a game that they would struggle a little more with. I thought San Jose State's offensive game plan was terrible. They didn't yeah. try to run the ball against USC like I thought they would. So that was what came away, that the just the game and how it sort of set up. I thought that San Jose State would be playing better and they, it would be a closer game uh, than it than it was. Just score-wise, it would be closer. It, it was closer than the score indicated, but I thought it would be a lot closer. Yeah, and it was closer until that uh, pick six at the end. Um, September 7th, unfortunately, Sam uh, Bam Cunningham passed away. That was kind of a shocker. He's, I believe he was 71, just um, seemed like he was full of life every time I saw him when he'd speak at events and stuff. So very unfortunate we lost uh, Sam Bam Cunningham during the season. Yep, and uh, a guy that used to uh, pop up at our tailgates now and again yeah. um, back in the day. And so, uh, yeah, definitely uh, rest in peace, Sam. And, um, you know, prayers went to his family. And uh, it was a, a great Trojan that uh, no longer with us. We go to September 11th. Uh, USC had their second game. Uh, Stanford, who had just got beaten pretty badly by a very mediocre Kansas State team the week before, uh, they put a beat down on USC. Trojans scored late a couple times, but Stanford wins 42-28. It was not that close. Uh, Nathaniel Pete, he had an 87-yard touchdown run in the game. Um, USC had a hard time stopping the run. He had, I think, 111 yards in the game, uh, 408 total yards for Stanford. USC was in the three, like 375 or something like that. But um, yeah, this was. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the significance of what happened in the aftermath of this game. But any, any thoughts from the Stanford game, Gerard? Uh, just that you know the defense just gave up too many big plays, and it was just a game with a lot of big plays. It didn't feel like a beatdown or some of the beatdowns that we would see from USC at home with other games because there would be more, but it just, they just looked like they were completely blindsided by Stanford's ability to just make big plays. You know, Stanford sort of has that Mike Mothership defense where they just throw it down the field and they get a pass interference or they get one of their big receivers to just sort of win the 50, 50 ball. And they used that. And then they got some big gashing runs. I mean, it was just big runs. It wasn't necessarily like they marched down the field. And so that was the first, red flag that the defense from a tackling standpoint from a getting off block standpoint was just not playing well and Stanford came in with a good game plan and they just kind of saw some exploits and they used them yeah uh well two days later (laughs) September 13th 2021 uh the day that really changed you know remember the pandemic changed everything uh this is the day that changed all of our lives um Clay Helton was fired the Sunday and Dante Williams was named the interim head coach that uh, huge on the message boards, huge on social media, huge for us, just huge for USC. It was something that fans were waiting for a really long time, Gerard. And it came out of the blue announced on social media by USC, Mike bone, the athletic director. Uh, So they're able to keep it quiet props to them for being able to do that. But that was a, uh, a day that le- will, you know, you want to, yeah, significant day for USC football fans. Yeah, kept it quiet, but didn't have to keep it quiet for long because, you know, it happened so quickly. And I think none of us 
just had seeing how this had all gone down in previous years, um, you know, they, they could go down quickly. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it went down quickly. Of course, we look at what happened to Steve Sarkeesian, and that was kind of out of nowhere, obviously. And then you'd see what happened with Lane Kiffin. And although you kind of got the feeling like, oh, Lane might be on the outs, you didn't think he was going to get fired at LAX. So I guess, you know, if you're comparing it to those two, maybe, maybe not as quickly, but we didn't see it coming that early. You kind of thought, okay, you know, uh, that's a bad game for them to lose. But the next game might be the game that they, they can them. You know, this, this might be when they decide they're going to finally move on. But this going into the season, I think when we talked about this over the summer, this was the year we thought realistically they could fire Clay Helton. Uh, we'd been saying shortened season, not going to happen. The year before, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he loses this, if he loses that, no, nah, nah, not going to happen. And we've pretty much been steadfast on them not firing him. But this was the season where you just kind of felt like yeah, it could be. They could pull the trigger this year if it's bad. And this should be a good year for USC. This is a, this is a team that talent-wise, and I'll stick to this, should have been winning nine, ten games. And so you felt like, wow, the Stanford game, man, they really blew that one and they blew it at home. But we're still thinking, you know, they, they, they have some losses ahead of them and it might happen then. But uh, they did not wait. They pulled the trigger immediately and got going on the coaching search. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that was a big, big, big day. Um, and the coaching search started, like Gerard said. But then uh, September 18th, USC had to go out uh, on the road and play Washington State, end up scoring 45 unanswered points, uh, the best win of the season. USC beats, uh, there wasn't that many to choose from, but USC beats Washington State 45-14. to 14. Uh, We got to see Jackson Dart. Um, you know, he was uh, taking the, the USC fan base by storm. Unfortunately, you know, ends up getting injured and uh, missed – uh, the next four games, I believe. But, um, yeah, we got to see uh, little Jackson Dart, 45 unanswered points. He turned the ball over a few times, but uh, made some big plays too. So it was uh, – a lot of people had optimism, and people were even talking about Dante Williams as a permanent head coach. What if USC wins a national championship? Like, those were real topics happening after this game, Gerard. What if USC wins the Pac-12? What if they win a national championship? Will they keep Dante Williams? Like, that's what we were talking about for, for seven days. Yeah, and you just kind of shake your head because you just realize, you know, people just getting way, way ahead of themselves on one game that, you know, obviously Jackson Dart played really well. He was healthy. You hope to see that Jackson Dart in the future because I think the injury from that game slowed him down a bit. And He's a guy that is a gunslinger and a guy that really needs to use his legs. And with Lincoln Riley's offense, you're going to want to see that. You know, you that's going to be an aspect of the offense that is going to be utilized. They will run the quarterback by design from time to time. And so, you know, Jackson Dart has that ability, but uh, over the course of the season and not to get ahead of ourselves, we just didn't see the same sort of guy that was outside the pocket willing to run um, just, you know, completely devil may care in terms of his, you know, the way he played and approached the game um, after that point. But uh, certainly, I mean, you saw great Gary Bryant, you saw a lot of the things that, you know, again, going back to fall camp, we sort of said, okay, these are the things that USC needs to have. These are uh, the earmarks of the team, the identity the team has to have in order to have a good year. And you sort of saw it come to fruition against uh, Washington State. You know, the defense made some turnovers. It was just like a, a, a game where you just saw the talented players kind of step up. 
and uh, play really well and, and have some big plays. And, and sort of that was the, the beginning of that and the end of that all in one week. Yep. Uh, two days later, Jackson Dart was the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week, and Drake Jackson was the Defensive Lineman of the Week. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, weekly awards for USC players uh, after that game. Um, but uh, a week or so later, it was September 27th, uh, USC lost to um, – or was it the, it might have been the 25th, sorry. USC loses to uh, Oregon State, 45 to 27. Again, um, giving up, uh, scoring some points late. This one was completely in Oregon State's control. Uh, they ran for 322 yards on this USC defense, Gerard. Not not ideal. Um, Nolan was like super efficient. I can't, I think it was like 15 of 18 or something throwing the ball, but the fact that they ran for over 300 yards on USC was just like, Ooh, PU Oregon state comes in, gets uh, their first win, uh, in the Coliseum since 1960, I believe. That was a beatdown. I mean, that was where we saw the defense just completely implode. And you really wondered, is this team starting to check out? On Dante Williams, is this team kind of done? Because that was a game where they just got beaten every facet of the game. And so, yeah, big red flag for the rest of the season after that game. Again, Stanford, you just saw a lot of big plays, and you're like, all right. I mean, they just blew some coverages, and they blew some tackles. But against Oregon State, Oregon State just methodically went up and down the field against USC, and defensively they had no answers. Yeah, that was a, that was a significant one. Um, October 2nd um, – USC goes on the road, beats Colorado 37-14. Slovis was 19-29 uh, for 276. He had uh, touchdown passes to London, Michael Trigg, and Gary Bryant Jr. Um, Colorado was not a very good team. Uh, but, you know, USC actually played okay in this one, I thought. Any any thoughts from the Colorado game? Well, they were, you know, on their way to playing a little better on the road than they were at home. You know, we're kind of wondering what's going on where they're playing at home and they're just not playing well at all. Is it distractions? Like, what's going on with that? But, uh, yeah, they kind of got away from things after that humiliating loss against Oregon State and uh, did play decently against Colorado. And you kind of didn't know what the heck kind of team Colorado was early in the season because they had played Texas A&M really tough at home and, and almost beat them. So you're kind of like, well, I mean, you know, maybe Colorado's okay and, and maybe it's just – you know, this team has to sort of get focused on the road with Dante Williams. And obviously Dante Williams is, you know, first time ever being a head coach, first time ever being in a position like that. I mean, there was a lot on his lap and I think he was swimming in it for a while. You know, they talk about freshmen when they come into fall camp and they're swimming in the scheme and just trying to, you know, get their bearings. It kind of seemed like that's kind of where Dante was uh, coming off that Washington state game. And everybody's like, Hey man, you know, you know, we, we can do it. And, and we can get it to come together. And, you know, it's just the amount of uh, motivation and inspiration. And, you know, then you turn around and you, you see what they play like, like against uh, Oregon State. Well, you get on Colorado and it's sort of we're back to that point where it's like, OK, well, wait, hey, hey, well, no, 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 they played well again. They played well again. So, you know, it's it's sort of equal footing. But you still kind of wondered, you know, uh, I don't know, that Oregon State game, just the way they played, it still left kind of bad taste in, in my mouth in terms of what the rest of the season was going to look like. Yeah. Uh, Parker Lewis ends up getting Pac-12 Special Teams Player of the Week. I think he was like three or three on field goals, hit all of his PATs and like seven of eight touchbacks. So there's, I think that was the last weekly award a USC player won. Um, the next weekend, October 9th, USC clobbered uh, by Utah, 42-26. Uh, Drake London had a big game, 16 catches, 162 yards, and a touchdown. 
Um, Cam Rising, uh, you know, this was sort of like a homecoming for him. I end up taking a picture of him on the field after the game, the Utah quarterback, and uh, he was FaceTiming with his mom who couldn't be there, but he's a Southern California kid that um, really did well. Utah kind of was rolling at this point, and USC was sort of uh, in the way. Um, again, you know, USC, I think, scored late a couple times. It was uh, more of a beatdown than what the score indicated. Uh, any thoughts on that Utah game? Because it, it, that one wasn't pretty either. Yeah, another beatdown at home. And really, we'd seen the better Utah teams, the Utah teams that had come into the Southern California ranked in previous years. USC blew those teams out. I mean, it was always one of those things where it was, oh, Utah's the team is going to win the South, and then they come to the Coliseum, and USC just tramples them. And this was the year where uh, Utah came in, and they played like everybody kind of expected they would play on paper, and they route USC. And so, again, you know, we're looking at the defense and just wondering, you know, have they checked out? Like, are these guys really playing hard anymore? It just seems like they cannot get their footing. And uh, it was just, a, you know, a, a, another sign of things to come where you're getting these embarrassing home losses. And, and during this point, I mean, from a recruiting standpoint, USC is doing like a really good job getting a bunch of good unofficial visitors on campus. I mean, they're getting guys from out of state that are, that are at the games. They're, they're getting guys like Raleigh Brown and David Bailey to the games. And they're just embarrassing, just embarrassing uh, the program, the way they're playing on the field. And, and it hurt USC with recruiting this year. I mean, it really hurt them, even bringing in Lincoln Riley. And we talked about, you know, the coaches that were going to be able to come in and hit the ground running and salvage the 2022 recruiting class. And, you know, James Franklin and some of the names we floated out there and Lincoln Riley being probably at the top of the list of guys that could really do it. You know, he couldn't even really do it. I mean, they really they missed on some guys late. And I think a lot of it had to do with just how absolutely putrid this team played on the field at home. And a guy like David Bailey, who's not a real college football aficionado, you know, not a guy that's watched a lot of college football. He's just a kid that just, you know, this whole process of new coaches and, and coaches getting fired and new staff completely beyond him. Didn't understand it. Didn't even know that you could fire college coaches. Thought they were like teachers that just basically stayed on campus and <laughs> at the school forever. So he's watching this. And I mean, this is like imprinted on him, you know, just USC getting absolutely bashed uh, in person and not really having a lot of context for, you know, what USC could be. You know, I think the guys, that follow college football and they go back to the Pete Carroll years or the just the tradition of USC overall, they have something to cite like, Hey, you know, USC can do this. USC can be an Alabama. They can be a mega power in college football. They just got to have the right people involved. And when you're not, you can't go and reference that. Then you're just looking at what's on the field. And he's thinking there's no way USC is going to be a winning program in the next couple of years. That's impossible. I've seen them play and they're absolutely terrible. And I think that really resonated with some of these kids that just, again, you know, the Reggie Bushes and the Leinerts and the Pete Carroll years, those guys, some of these guys are just, they're not even, I don't know if they were, they were born, but I, I don't think they were around enough to really understand it. It's their fathers and their uncles and the people that were around it to be able to say, this is what's going on. But if those guys uh, weren't college football fans at that time and, and their parents weren't really into college football and they didn't attend the university or whatever whatever the case may be, then you just don't have that sort of, well, yeah, USC's really bad right now, but USC could, they could be a national championship contender. It just, you know, we've seen it turn around in the past. Um, they don't have that 
to sight. And so I think some of these games where USC just played so bad on the field, it definitely hurt them in recruiting. Yeah, because they were, like you said, they they had people there watching, but, man, they didn't get to see a whole lot. Uh, get a bye week, lick the wounds, and then October 23rd, heading out the ro- on the road, take on Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Uh, went out there for that one with Keeley and Shotgun. Trojans lose 31-16. Drake London did have a career high, 171 yards receiving. Uh, Keontae Ingram had a season high, 138 yard, 138 yards rushing for the Trojans, but were able to overcome the Irish. Yep, another loss to Notre Dame, which has been uh, how many in a row now? Uh, like four? I think it's four in a row. Maybe I have to go back and look. Yeah. I oh no, wait. Uh, I think it's been more than that. <laughs> no, because I don't even know. Yeah, they had that. They had that four and eight season, like in 2016, maybe. Yeah, they didn't play last year, so I think it was four, maybe five. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look. Well, yeah, another loss to Notre Dame. Uh, another sort of reminder that USC nationally not relevant. Uh, one of those games that you kind of can look at as a marker as to where you are outside the Pac-12, which obviously the Pac-12 hasn't been real relevant uh, nationally as a conference. Um, but just another reminder. You know, USC just not there. They they played, you know, uh, better. Uh, but you know, the interesting thing is they've actually played Notre Dame a lot closer than some of these other games that they've played against lesser opponents in the conference. And there was always that thought that, you know, Brian Kelly's kind of a smart guy, didn't want to necessarily pour it on and, and embarrass uh, the boosters and, and get USC start to, you know, feel like, hey, we need to get people rallied up to uh, maybe get a new head coach and uh, kind of, you know, it's like, Oh, you guys, you know, you played well and you, you you're competitive still with clay health and uh, we beat you for the 20th time in, you know, in, in a row, but uh, still, you know, not so bad. It's one of those things when you start to get blowout losses against rivals, it definitely moves the needle a little more than if you're losing by, you know, 17 points or 20 points. And so, you know, later on in the season, there's maybe some foreshadowing there of what happens with a rival getting a blowout loss at home. Yeah, uh, that's what happened. It, it, four in a row for Notre Dame. USC won uh, two of the previous three, but you, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish won the last uh, four. Let's go to October 30th. Um, USC gets a win over Arizona, 42-34. Uh, that was the most points Arizona scored all season. That was a homecoming game. Um, Ingram ran for 186 yards and a touchdown. Gary Bright Jr. caught a couple touchdowns, but if you remember, Drake London uh, went out uh, before halftime with an ankle injury, ends up being out for the season. So significant game. USC gets a win over Arizona, but gave up a lot of points that Arizona had not been scoring uh, that season and uh, lose Drake London. So you can say it's a win, but it really wasn't a win. Yeah, you lose Drake, and that's uh, kind of the gravitational point for your offense. I mean, uh, I kind of it taken during the season when we were making our predictions and not caring at all about what the prediction would be at that point and just talking about the, what was I calling it, the Drake raid offense or whatever. It was basically just the offense had become Drake London, you know. It just throw it to Drake London. Um, the other receivers were just kind of there. And uh, once he went out, then it was like, okay, well, there's your offense, basically, your identity of your offense. And so, um, you know, that kind of forced them to have to run the ball a little bit too towards the end of the season because they didn't have Drake London. Um, But, yeah, certainly uh, a big loss for them, although you knew it was a loss that 
just didn't necessarily mean something in the grand scheme of things for USC because they weren't really going to win those games even if they had Drake London. And furthermore, you knew Drake London was leaving after the season anyway. So it's like, okay, you know, he's going to have to get back on the rehab and that's going to be tough for him because, you know, it's going to put him back a little bit from the combine um, from a personal standpoint. But for USC as a team, it was just, yeah, just another thing that happened on a season, which at this point we're going, okay, is this just going to be like a record breaking bad season? Like how bad is it really going to get? You know, where is rock bottom with the team? We know they're just horrible and this is not going to, there's no real light at the end of the tunnel in terms of how the team is playing. Um, you're just waiting to see what happens with the coaching surge and how bad that team can actually play. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's see. We went from the Arizona game. Oh, yeah. But we wanted to see Drake London uh, try to win the Bolitnikoff and get postseason awards. So that was that was sort of like what people were watching. They weren't really caring about the record. Uh, so you kind of lost that from from that game, too. Um, November 6th, USC lost uh, 31-16 again, same score to Notre Dame, uh, to Arizona State. Uh, freshman Kalen Bullock did have a couple picks in this game, but um, ASU pretty much took it to USC. Yep. Yeah. All right. <laughs> At this point in the season, it's just a bunch of yep. Yep. Uh, November 9th, the uh, USC-Cal game got rescheduled to December 4th. So that was like a, whoa, Uh fact that it was going to be postponed. Why? Yeah. That was a why. That was a why. <laughs> more than a woe. <laughs> it was woe. Now, obviously, we didn't know who the head coach was going to be. And the administration had told us, like, it was beneficial that the if they hired a coach after, like, the BYU game, they could have allowed that coach to see a week of practice. And that's what ended up happening. And we'll, we'll get to that with Lincoln Riley. But um, I don't know. I mean, it, and Lincoln Riley even mentioned it. Like, it was, it, it was really valuable for him to watch this team – uh, practice and it seemed like the team played better in the last two games we'll get to so maybe they were a little motivated knowing that the like the new head coach was around or whatever but um yeah I don't know it was uh that was an interesting well yeah but why why was this rescheduled I still don't know at that point there was a lot of confusion because you know I was kind of asking around because they lost that recruiting weekend because they were going to be playing up a cow and we knew that you know if they were going to have a new coach come in it was vital just to have as many weekends as possible to have recruits. Now there was also the potential that if they had a new staff come in, that new staff could host recruits while the old staff, former staff would be up um, in Berkeley playing cow. So we were talking about this, you know, during that point of like, okay, what's actually going to happen here? Because there was definitely some confusion and even inside of heritage hall and the McKay Center as to what was going to happen with that recruiting weekend. And they end up bringing in some recruits uh, during that weekend for unofficial visits. It was kind of a big 2023 unofficial visit weekend uh, during that rescheduled weekend when they were playing at Cal. And uh, they also brought in Elias Ricks for an official visit during that weekend, although they did not have Dante Williams, obviously, on campus because he was still the interim head coach coaching at Cal. So it was a very strange sort of thing. Um Asking around from an administrative standpoint, afterwards, we kind of got the impression that the Pac-12 was really pushing for that game to be rescheduled, that it wasn't necessarily USC that just decided, oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll go ahead and reschedule the game uh, without really kind of thinking about it. It was the Pac-12 that was really pushing for them to reschedule the game uh, because of TV money and, and contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily all about USC 
um, trying to do it. Uh, at least that is what I had heard. So um, kind of a little bit of an interesting thing when you think about, you know, that relationship with uh, USC and the Pac-12. And, you know, a lot of people feel like USC's got to be that school uh, that has to be at the top in order for the Pac-12 to be relevant again. And, um, you know, we'll see uh, what the Pac-12 thinks about that and, um, you know, that relationship going forward. How much USC needs the Pac-12, how much the Pac-12 needs USC. Obviously, in the past, it seemed like with Larry Scott, the Pac-12 didn't think they needed USC all that much. It seemed like uh, USC was just another school, and, you know, they're going to go ahead and have as much parity as possible because, you know, the Pac-12 is going to be the new NFL and um, kind of uh, ignoring the fact that um, there are other conferences that you are competing against. It's not the NFL that's competing against the CFL. It's (laughs) the Pac-12 competing against the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, et cetera, et cetera and how those conferences run their conference and, you know, whether they're scheduling nine games or eight games uh, within the conference, they're doing all these different things to try to maneuver and position themselves to be in that college football playoff to, to get into bowl games where they can make as much money as possible on top of the TV deals and the merchandising uh, deals that they're having. And the PAC 12 was just woefully behind on all of that. And again, it seemed like with USC and trying to, you know, use USC as sort of a catalyst to be able to raise the, the standard of the conference. Instead, it was like, let's try to kneecap USC as much as possible in order to give everybody else a chance to be able to be at that same level. So it, it was, uh, you know, a certain uh, philosophy that uh, sort of was a page out of the, 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 the communist manifesto freaking page book um, in terms of their approach to it and kind of making everybody equal. And it it was this weird sort of collective sort of mentality that, that Larry Scott had and it blew up in his face classically uh, while he was in a $12 million studio uh, in San Francisco. So it all basically fell up on top of him, uh, which was predictable. But again, you know, we're going to see going forward how the PAC 12 wants to look at USC and do they look at USC like, um, you know, the Big 12 looked at Texas or, you know, some of these conferences have, have always known, you know, there's certain schools and certain programs that you kind of have to build around. And in order to have good football in your conference, you got to raise the bar. You know, you got to push everybody's got, hey, look at, you got to reinvest. Okay. Look at what USC has done. They went out and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. I mean, obviously we have a big date coming up here, but they've gone and hired a, a, a proven winner as a coach. They've clearly invested a lot of money in that, and that that's where everybody in the Pac-12 needs to get to, right? It's not, you know, lowering the bar. It's everybody needs to do what that that standard is to try to win championships. That's how the Pac-12 is going to get better. It's not going to be running around hiring these mediocre coaches like Clay Helton that have not proven it and not been anywhere and, and, and been experienced as head coaches and, and been winners. It's getting to the level where you're getting guys that can do it and can beat football teams and, and football being something that, you know, is actually, it matters to the conference also, because that's, you know, been a question mark in terms of how the conference uh, handled the COVID year and some of the things that have gone on. So maybe significant in terms of that interaction with the conference and pushing USC um, to do the Cal game. And, and, you know, obviously if that's, you know, completely factual. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see. We got to do uh next two games. We don't need to go over much, but uh November 20th, USC loses to UCLA 62-33. Favai had three touchdowns. That was nice of him, but UCLA had 609 yards. Just they beat down DTR went bananas. 
Um, and then a week later, uh, USC loses to BYU 35-31, November 27th. Jackson Dart passed for 248 yards and rushed for a score. But uh, And they actually, they covered the spread. They actually played BYU pretty close, had a late lead, um, but weren't able to overcome um, the Cougars. So those things both happened. I don't know if we need to really go over that at all. Um, I forgot to mention July 1st, you, like you mentioned the Pac-12. George Klyovkov was named the commissioner of the Pac-12. There was also other like significant college football stuff like NIL and things like that that happened during the year, but I just kind of focus this on the USC news. But one day later, after BYU, it was a Sunday, another day that changed all of our lives, that changed everything, got people excited. Uh, this is Thanksgiving weekend, November 28th. Lincoln Riley named head coach of USC. And the very next day, he had his press conference in the Coliseum. Um, crazy, crazy times, you know, brought uh, you know, Alex uh, Grinch with him, bought, brought Dennis Simmons with him, um, a couple other staffers. Uh, this was as, as big as it gets for us, Gerard. I mean, the, this was out of the blue. Someone really didn't think that was possible. Uh, kind of a Hail Mary attempt one day after Oklahoma lost heartbreaking fashion to Oklahoma State. Uh, wasn't going to be the Big 12 champion for the first time under Lincoln Riley. Uh, and they end up getting him, the the biggest hire in college football this year. I think you can even argue bigger than uh, Brian Kelly going to LSU. But thoughts on the Lincoln Riley hire? Stunning. Just, you know, like, wow. They really, I mean, we were, again, at the point where it seemed like Matt Campbell was going to be the guy. And you're excited about that because Matt Campbell is a really good football coach. And again, a guy that's actually proven that he can win. He can develop a culture, uh, has done a lot more with less at Iowa State. So just the fact that we're at that point, having gone through this long coaching search and, you know, names like Dave Aranda and Matt Campbell are still out there. You know, you're sort of hoping and crossing your fingers. Like I, I hope USC makes this move and it doesn't come out of left field and Hugh Jackson is the next head coach for the USC Trojans. Like you're just, we have had so much bad sort of PTSD from the coaching moves that USC has made in the past with the nepotism and just the sort of completely out of touch nature that past administrations have had you're just keeping in the back of your mind, my God, what, what could be the worst case scenario and talking to sources and always trying to keep that in the back of your mind. Like this could really go South again. And maybe somehow, some way they decide that they're just going to go in some other direction. And so when Lincoln Riley comes up and it was literally like, boom, 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 you know, a little sort of, uh, I think it was Bruce Feldman that first put out the tweet he wouldn't be surprised if USC was in contact with Lincoln Riley. That was immediately like, Whoa, what, what, what? They, he wouldn't be surprised. There was clearly something there. There was more there. And that was the first little footnote of USC and Lincoln Riley even being in the same sentence. Now, you know, previously uh, a couple of days before that point, you know, Lincoln Riley had clearly turned down the LSU job. You know, I'm not going to be the coach at LSU. So you assumed at that point, 
okay, he's going to stay at Oklahoma. And obviously Oklahoma Sooner fans all thought that. And so USC was never in the conversation. Nobody at that press conference even followed up with the question, but are you going to be the head coach at Oklahoma next year? Nobody asked that question because nobody thought in a million years USC, which was the other big job still out there, uh, would would be under consideration. So, you know, people at that beat and people that are closer to that situation thought there was no way that it was happening. So, again, we were like clearly just focused on Matt Campbell and hearing all these things about Matt Campbell and him being on the fence and that they can be able to close this deal. It came completely out of left field that Lincoln Riley was going to be named the head coach at USC. And that, like I said, just happened boom, boom, boom. And, you know, it, it becomes official uh, very shortly after. Yeah. Uh, huge, 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 huge news. Uh, the site went crazy. All of our podcasts were doing record numbers. The tunnel vision shows, all of our content. It absolutely was bonkers, and it's been bonkers uh, pretty much since. Um, so, uh, you know, props to the USC Athletic Department for pulling that one off. Uh, no one really thought they could do it, and they did. Um, then he's around. He's, uh, he's out, um, you know, uh, they pick up a commitment as a Rayleigh Brown, like, couple days later then two five-star you know 2023 kids like three days in a row he gets like three five stars that first week he's in before he even slept in his own bed he was visiting brown uh in his house but also checking out the usc football team because usc still had a game left they had to play cal uh, i had to go on the road and play cal so they could lincoln riley was there on tuesday watching practice we were there that was very weird um that riley and his new staff members were watching usc play uh usc practice getting ready for this game and to be fair, the Trojans did lose 24 uh, 24-14. Um, Cal only had 264 yards in the game. Dart ends up getting hurt. Miller Moss comes in. He throws that TD pass we mentioned earlier to Katie Nixon. Uh, but I thought USC played tougher against Cal and BYU. There was sort of like a sense of pride, like, hey, let's let's try to get a win here. Now they didn't win either game, but they they were they were in those games much more than what we saw in some of those blowouts that we happened earlier. But I don't know if there was a Lincoln Riley lighting a fire under these guys. Uh, obviously he wasn't hired by the time they played BYU, but they played that one pretty tough. Um, they rallied a little bit, at least for the last two games of the season. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't that's matter. all I got to say about that. And yep. I mean, at this point it's, you know, what's Lincoln Riley going to do on the recruiting trail? Uh, who is the new staff going to be? Who are they actually getting from Oklahoma? Oklahoma at this point is having transfers, you know, one or two a day. And everybody's thinking, well, Lincoln Riley's just going to have half of the roster from Oklahoma come over to USC. And every, you know, kid that was looking at USC prior to Clay Helton being fired is going to turn around and commit to USC immediately. So, you know, expectations just kind of go through the roof of the fan base and everybody wants to, see USC just kind of turn around overnight. Um, obviously, you know, that didn't happen and that's not going to happen. You know, it's going to take some time um, to get this thing straightened out. But yeah, at that point it was all about Lincoln Riley and, and the, the, the future of rebuilding USC, rebuilding the culture. Um, and, you know, what USC did on the field was just completely uh, kind of irrelevant. I think to, to most of the fans at that point. Yeah. Uh, so, and that, you know, we haven't got official word on any more staff members. So Lincoln Riley did tell us, um, well, we'll, we'll kind of go over that in a little bit, like what he said. But uh, after that, it was some transfer news, December 6th, Hunter Eccles, Giuliano Falanico, and Jacob Lichtenstein, all 
transferred out. Uh, Jake's going to Miami. Um, so we're going to see some roster turnover there. Uh, so that happened. Uh, the next day, December 7th, Drake London was named Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year. Uh, Chase Williams also transferred out. So four transfers in the first couple of days. Uh, and I thought Drake London was a, a good choice for Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year. He still led the league in catches and touchdowns, even though he played seven and a half games. Uh, not touchdowns, uh, receiving yards and receptions. Um, I don't think there was a dominant player in the Pac-12 outside of London on the offensive side, and he was definitely that. Yep. <laughs> Any thoughts on the transfer guys? Nope. No. Yeah. Not right now. I mean, it's uh, you know, for good. Lincoln Riley was very upfront. You know, when he got hired and he made his uh, inaugural speech, he talked about turning that roster upside down, and he talked about that very sort of openly. You know, this is going to look like a different team next season, and not just from the standpoint of performance, but standpoint of you're going to have a, a lot of transfers, and you're going to have a lot of guys that uh, um, were not on this team that are going to be on the team, and, and you know that's going to be an interesting approach um you know how you try to build a culture with a bunch of guys that kind of come in with maybe more of a mercenary mentality um this whole you know transfer portal uh, plug-in type of approach to schools is, is sort of new and certainly we're going to see it next year where it's at a mass level right i mean we're used to seeing three or four guys here and there and the school gets this guy um, that, that plugs into the position because they lost a good player. Okay. That's one thing, but you know, the, 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 the culture and everything has been established around that. And that player is just plugged in to that culture and into that team and to that mentality and the philosophy that they have. USC has kind of got to get to the ground level of this, the foundation of what this team is going to look like and throwing in a bunch of guys from all kinds of different schools. Some of them are like, Hey man, I want to be one and done. I want to get in. I want to, you know, uh, win some games, but I want to get to the NFL. And, and not to say that, you know, a lot of the current players and even the recruits that you bring in don't have that mentality, but they know they have years ahead of them. And in a lot of situations, they have years with that coaching staff or they have years at that program. USC is trying to rebuild. And I think, you know, you've got to be careful with the locker room when you just bring in a bunch of guys from all these different places or just, you know, sort of castaways and, and you could win like that and you could turn around like that, but you want to make sure you do it the right way and you want to do it for the future long-term. And so that's going to be a big challenge for Lincoln Riley and the staff um, to, to kind of get away from the, the a lot of the players uh, that are currently on the roster that they don't fit. Um, and whether it be just, you know, their mentality or their attitude and their entitlement, I mean, you've got to weed that out. So you've got to get those guys to kind of move on. But at the same time, you don't want to bring in sort of guys that, that may not have the right mentality either. And certainly with a transfer, a guy that's played college football for a couple of years, it's different than when you're bringing in high school players. So that's going to be the big challenge and to see how that's pieced together. Um, we've already seen some transfers uh, that are on their way in to USC, uh, guys that are uh, transferring out of other schools, um, and I, I guess we'll talk about that. Uh, but, you know, you're going to see more than just plugging in a couple guys at positions of need. You know, this is not USC needs a left tackle. They're going to go out and get a left tackle. And it's like, okay, cool. But the rest of the team is sort of they have their established philosophy, culture. They sort of know what they expect. Nobody knows what they expect. And everybody's sort of going to be kind of moved around. And so it's going to be very interesting to see with all this mass 
players coming in and, and probably still a lot of players. Um, I don't want to say a lot, but I think they're still going to see some guys transfer out. Yeah. All right. Uh, next we had December. Well, more transfers. I'll kind of go through them. December 9th, uh, Earl Barquette transfers in from TCU. Um, defensive lineman. And then Raymond Scott, the linebacker, transferred out same day. Uh, a few days later, December 13th, Keaton Slovis transferred out. He's going to Pitt. Parker Lewis, the kicker, also transferred out. Uh, next day, we heard uh, Keen Kristen actually was going to be cleared and be able to, uh, or the, he won his appeal and he'd be able to potentially play. He wasn't going to be suspended till the end of 2022, but he entered the portal. And then Liam Douglas also uh, entered the transfer portal. Um, Has Raymond Scott actually signed with another team or, or actually transferred to another school? Or is he just still in the portal? He's in the portal, yeah. So I haven't heard okay. if he's signed anywhere yet. But that, that was kind I of mean, the, out of yeah, yeah, out of the the group of players, I think he's the guy that is is a guy that USC really should try to, to hang on to. I think he's a talented player. Um, there's some players there that that have some talent, but you know, I think he's one of the few guys that could really contribute, especially in that type of defense that Alex Grinch runs. Um, and they, you know, they missed out on David Bailey. They missed out on some linebackers. We can see if maybe on the back end here going into February, they can, you know, find maybe somebody else. Um, they were able to get Garrison Madden, uh, who's a six foot, six two, two hundred ton, two hundred pound linebacker, kind of undersized to be able to play right away. But a guy that's running a ten seven, very fast. Speed is is certainly going to be an aspect of this defense, which is going to increase a lot. Uh, Alex Grinch wants the defense is going to be a little smaller and a little more mobile, even up front. We're going to see how that works. Um, it seemed to work pretty good against uh, Oregon, who were, you know, kind of the bully of the Pac-12 the past couple years. And um, that defense, in terms from a personnel standpoint, because people will point out, well, Alex Grinch wasn't the huge corner in that game. Well, nevertheless, still were the personnel that he had recruited and he had built. And against the Oregon team, which is, you know, one of the more physical teams in the Pac-12, um, you know, they were dominating that game, you know, what were they, 33 or something at halftime, ended up, you know, being a, a kind of classic uh, Bob Stoops uh, choke job almost there in the second uh, half, um, but they were able to, to, you know, stay on top and win the game. But in terms of just the way the defense played early on, um, the mobility and the speed, I mean, that's something that USC has sort of lacked. You know, I think um, it was a transition even Todd Orlando was trying to make uh, from some of the Clancy Pendergast defenses where you had guys like Palier, Oteote, uh, were just bigger linebackers. Um, he wants to get a little smaller, a lot of quicker. And I, I think Raymond Scott is a guy that could do that. We just haven't seen Raymond Scott very consistently. It seems like he's always rotating in with someone else. Uh, he's always uh, sort of like a special package type of guy. But I think he's a player that if USC is able to kind of get him back out of the portal, um, he could play at USC. All right, I've uh, got a few more. December 16th, so just uh, a couple weeks ago, they announced the 2022 football schedule. Uh, one Friday game in this one, but much much sooner than we got. You know, we, we heard the, about the 2021 in March. So a little more uh, lead up for this one for uh, 2022, but not the, no BYU on this one, on this schedule. So it's not, doesn't look as hard as uh, maybe you've seen in the past. But I, did you have any thoughts on the schedule, Gerard? I haven't even seen the schedule for okay. 2022. Yeah. So oh, I have, I have no thoughts. Yeah, no big <laughs> Other deal. Other than, you know, the schedule always looks 
uh, there's always the people that look at it and go, well, they should win every game. And then there's the people that are like, ah, you know, the you know, college football is not quite like that. Sometimes there's, you know, some games in there that uh, you'll play against teams that nobody thought were going to be good that end up being good. Um, you know, certainly it's going to be interesting. We, we, again, we're going to talk about this at some point during the spring, but, you know, what are the expectations for the USC football team next year? You know, how many games should they win? Obviously, we have to look at the schedule and break it down, but it's hard to project, um, you know, because we just don't know what the roster is going to look like. We're not going to know what the roster looks like. In, in its entirety until probably right up until August. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be partly, you know, what gives us an idea of how to project what the team's capable of from a talent standpoint, which is going to be new. Um, but then also, you know, just how much of an impact does Lincoln Riley make and the new coaches make and, and how much better does the team just flat out play? But there's a lot of question marks. There's, a lot of people are going to say Lincoln Riley won a bunch of games at Oklahoma He's going to come to USC, and they're just going to be great, you know, right off the bat. And it's just not really – I'm not saying it can't work that way, but uh, has my reservations. I, I think, you know, it, it, it could be a slower process um, than some think. Um, but I don't know for sure. Again, we, we that's a conversation we're going to have to have for another time. Yeah. Uh, then December 15th, the 17th, the early signing period, USC has the, currently the 70th-ranked class. Um in the country and number nine in the Pac-12, but that's only seven signed letters of intent. Um, Damani Jackson, uh, the five-star cornerback who was a commit uh, from modern day, he's back. And Rayleigh Brown, also from modern day. So two five-stars there. A couple of Vegas guys, Zeon Branch and Fabian Ross. Um, defensive backs, they're highly ranked four-star guys. Um, Devin Tompkins from Stockton, the edge rusher, three-star uh Garrison Madden was a signing day guy uh, for the speedy linebacker from Georgia. And then they get a, an 18 year old Australian punter Atticus uh, Bertrams. So not a, not a 28 year older. He's, he's straight out of high school, but he did do pro kick Australia. So small class and we'll see there's still the all-star games coming up. I'm actually going to be in Hawaii. I'm sacrificing Gerard going to Hawaii for the Polynesian bowl. Um, But you got the Under Armour game. You got the all American bowl. Um, so there, there, there could be some more signings and then of course, uh, the February period, but, uh, that was the, those three, those three days were the early signing period. And we got to hear from Lincoln Riley on the 17th. They had their presser. Uh, they had it soon after we heard from Damani Jackson and he had signed with USC. So that was a good one. It was like the first uh, press conference. It was like less pomp and circumstance, just more about information. That's where he told us he wasn't going to announced the staff until it was fully together. They weren't going to do it piecemeal. And he came around and shook all the media's hand, and we got to talk to him a little bit. So that was good. Um, but, you know, they kept it fairly short. We got to – he kind of went over all the players and stuff. Um, but any thoughts from the early signing period? Um, you know, 70, uh, we had thought, you know, when we talked about Lincoln Riley coming in and some of the official visitors and – I mean, it was such a fluid couple of weeks trying to know who was going to be on campus again uh, that was on campus in June for official visits and uh, what chance they had at some of these guys. And, you know, we've seen a few players back out of the early signing period. And so we're going to have to see, you know, on the back end here of the early signing period going into February, which is the traditional signing period, uh, USC still got, you know, quite a few names that they're going to be after. Uh, but certainly 70, 
you know, we kind of said, well, you know, they could be you know, creep up to the thirties, maybe the, you know, top 25 ish. Um, if, if they hit on a few guys, it's one of those things when you have such a small class, you got to hit on certain guys, but they missed on David Bailey, uh, the four-star linebacker out of modern day high school. We signed with Stanford. Um, they missed on Marvin Jones jr. It was kind of like an outside, um, chance, you know, that they would maybe be able to really like hit the ground running with him. He was a guy that's a five-star coming out of Florida, but was looking at Alabama, Georgia, and all these big time SEC schools and really just had a relationship with Jamar Kane and felt like at Oklahoma with that situation, maybe they were able to get him and kind of steal him away from the SEC. So Jamar Kane comes to USC. And at this point, we think Jamar Kane is going to end up at USC as the defensive line coach. We're going to talk a little bit about more on that in the war room. Um, but it was one of those things where, you know, you're trying to look at the relationships with these kids and sort of, okay, now it's at USC. All right. So, I mean, you, you were recruiting the kid at Oklahoma, had a good relationship with them, the commits that were committed to Oklahoma. USC really didn't make a big move with a lot of those guys. Um, I think there was a lot of thought that there was going to be more movement from the Oklahoma class to the USC class, but it was really Raleigh Brown was the only guy um, outside of the 2023 kids, um, Malachi um, Nelson and Makai Lemon, uh, that USC really made a move with. So, um, you know, from that standpoint, you know, 70, not great. They're going to try to make a move here with some linemen, particularly. That's really the important position. Um, they offered a couple new cornerbacks, uh, defensive backs just recently, uh, Kamari Terrell uh, from Texas and Miguel Mitchell from um, Alabama. Uh, so it looks like they want to get some more defensive backs uh, on the roster. Um, and uh, they'll, they'll have a couple guys come in. I mean, they're going to have uh, Josh Connerly come in uh, in January, who's uh, five-star, number one, uh, or number two, depending on uh, what uh, rankings you're looking at, offensive tackle in the nation. And, and a guy that was at USC like six times in four months. I mean, he's at USC unofficially a bunch. Again, it's going to be one of those things, just what he saw, the poor level of football. Does it sort of leave a stain or a bad taste in his mouth about USC and what USC could do in the future? Um, but he's clearly very interested in USC as a university. And uh, now USC has an offensive line coach. Um, they've uh, hired uh, or I shouldn't say that officially because we don't know officially yet, but uh, Josh Henson definitely seems like he's going to be the offensive line coach in Texas A&M, which is a really big hire uh, for them. It looks like the coaching staff is pretty much um, in place at this point. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the war room regarding the running back position and some of these other positions, um, the coaches. But um, certainly USC does, you know, there, there's still a couple of outstanding uh, potential commitments there that are coming um, at the All-Star game. And then on the other side of the dead period, uh, there's, you know, a handful of recruits that are still recruits and USC still going to try to go after. And we'll see, uh, you know, how the January official visits go. And again, it's offensive line. You know, it's David Uli, a four-star offensive uh, lineman from Washington. who's going to take an unofficial visit to USC. He's got one official visit left. He's taking that to Miami. He's a former Oregon commit. So he has that relationship with Mara Cristobal. And so he's going to go down to Miami officially, but then he's going to come back. He's going to take unofficial visits to USC and Oregon. That's a big potential get for USC. We'll see if USC is able to make a push with uh, Devon Campbell, who had kind of narrowed it down um, after the early signing period, which he backed off on signing early. And uh, he's a five-star out of Arlington, Texas, Boy High School. Uh, another big-time player that's been to USC a couple times, uh, once on his own dime. He came officially uh, during the summer, and his family's really big on USC, but 
you know, again, it's one of those things he narrowed it down to Oklahoma and Texas as USC now with an offensive line coach in place, able to get back in that conversation and get another official visit from him in January. That would be absolutely huge. Um, right now it's not looking good, uh, but we'll see, you know, once, once you get into January, you get on the other side of things. And again, you know, Josh Henson, um, potentially his offensive line coach gets on the phone and Riley gets on the phone and they actually can recruit, you know, they were able to get a little more recruiting done with that, you know, two weeks that they basically had Lincoln Riley was just everywhere trying to do in home visits and he didn't have an offensive line coach. He really didn't have a defensive line coach and not having some of those coaches from a, from a line standpoint, it really handicapped USC uh, in terms of uh, the amount of recruiting they were able to do and uh, being able to sell, you know, with the future of the program, when you just don't have coaches at certain positions, um, it makes it very difficult. So we'll see going forward how they're able to, uh, to, to raise this uh, recruiting class and get some guys that are going to be impact players. And it doesn't look like they're just going to bring in a bunch of guys and bring in guys. They're trying to get some guys that are going to actually be impact players. They're going to be playing next year as freshmen. All right. We got two more and then we're done. Uh, we'll do some questions. This has been, we're already gone an hour and a half, Gerard. Um, December 21st, Drake London was the team MVP. And then just a few days ago, December 26th, Bobby Haskins transfers, announces transfer from uh, Virginia. So, yeah, Bobby Haskins, I mean, you know, the, the offensive tackle that USC just could not land uh, from the transfer portal uh, for the longest time. I mean, it's like, it's like, why they weren't able uh, with the past regime to be able to get offensive line transfers, um, just uh, just a question that will remain a question for a long time, kind of like wide receiver recruiting over the past couple of seasons um, when you're throwing the ball 60 times a game and you've got all these great uh, guys going uh, at the receiver position in the NFL, and it's like, uh, but Oregon is lapping you on receiver recruiting. Those two questions of recruiting are just going to remain questions. Um, they finally get an offensive lineman from uh, the transfer portal and um, Bobby Haskins, a, a good player, decent player, you know, really don't know a whole lot about him in terms of uh, how good he's really is and, and, and how much of an impact he's going to be able to make. I know that when he came in on his official visit, um, there's some people that talked about him just physically, you know, we just don't have offensive linemen that look like this guy, uh, which is, I don't know, you know what that says. I mean, Virginia is not necessarily uh, LSU or Georgia, um, but uh you know, uh, it sounds like people are excited, and, and again, it's it's big body on the offensive line and uh, at offensive tackle specifically, and that's huge. I mean, that's just important for USC from a depth standpoint. Um, they need depth, and they also need players that can come in and make an impact immediately. So they're going to continue to recruit on the offensive line from uh, the porthole. And, um, you know, Earl Barquette, I think, is a, a huge one. We didn't really talk about that, but that was uh, sort of that last weekend of recruiting. Uh, they snuck him in. And uh, a guy that on film looks really good as a defensive tackle, like really active, like absolutely prototypical Alex Grinch type of defensive lineman, shift him, a lot of twist stunts, um, just a lot of uh, sort of movement, uh, a guy that's super quick. Um, now he's about 280 pounds. So, um, you know, recruited out of high school at 235. So that's, again, you know, kind of sort of the guys that I think you're going to see uh, looked at a little more, you know, on the West Coast. I think it's the one real upside with Alex Grinch being that he comes from Washington State and he had to do more with less and a lot of undersized guys. There's maybe a little more patience than there would be if you bring in a defensive line coach from the SEC or the Midwest that you're used to just getting 285, 300-pound interior defensive linemen out of high school all the time. It's just not how it is on the West Coast. You've got to find these guys that uh, are, are 
perhaps, you know, coming out of high school at 230, 240, and you're able to build them up in your program um, to be a little bigger. And so, uh, you know, Earl Barquette kind of was one of those guys coming out of Texas. He's originally from Dallas um, and then went to TCU. But, yeah, out of high school, he was a 235-pound guy, and now he's a 280-pound guy. Um, so uh, that was a big get for USC. I think in terms of, you know, early potential transfers, he's definitely a guy that um, pops up on the radar a little bit as a guy that could play a lot next year and be uh, pretty vital for them. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll, uh, we'll try to go through some rapid-fire questions because we've gone on a long time. But back in a minute. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, we're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Uh, let's start with a voicemail, uh, Gerard, a topic we were just talking about. Hey, Curtis from Moreno Valley. This uh, new lineman that we got in the transfer portal from Virginia, 7 295, left tackle, highly graded by all whatever the services, the grade linemen. Way to go, uh, Lincoln Riley and the recruiting people. Let's keep it up. Curtis from Moreno Valley. It's excited. Curtis is pumped. Curtis is good job, Lincoln Riley. Um, I, again, I don't really know a lot about Bobby Haskins. I haven't watched a lot of film of Bobby Haskins. I think he's a three-star in the portal, um, but a big body and a guy that uh, certainly looks apart. So we'll see. You know, we'll see. Can, can he be that franchise left tackle for USC? Can he be um, that guy that uh, you know can 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 really hold down the blind side? Again, I think in Lincoln Riley's system, it's not going to be quite as important as having you know a guy like Keaton Slovis or Matt Barkley. That's a pure pocket passer. He's going to want guys that are mobile, and that, you know, in college football, I think is just important because it takes pressure off of your offensive line. You know, you don't have to have an amazing offensive line if you're running a lot of misdirection and your quarterback is always potentially a threat to be able to run the ball and or at least a threat to be able to get away from the rush and move outside the pocket. And so we haven't really seen a whole lot of that with USC since Sam Darnold. And um, I think, you know, Jackson Dart can really do that. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Miller Moss because he is a little more of a pocket quarterback. Um, and do they kind of change the offense a little bit for a guy if they feel like he's the better uh, option at that point? Because, you know, Lincoln Riley went after Devin Brown, who was the former commit for USC, who's committed to USC for a long time and just backed off, you know, kind of towards the end of the process and ended up 
uh, signing with Ohio State. Lincoln Riley made a run to try to get an in-home with Devin Brown, and, and that was interesting because Devin Brown's not really a super mobile quarterback either. So it was kind of one of those things where it looked like he just was going after the best arm he could, you know, the best talent available and would, you know, build the offense around whatever style quarterback that was when you're going to go after Devin Brown. So that could still happen with Miller Moss, but certainly college football nowadays, a lot of the best offenses are running mobile quarterbacks because again, it takes a lot of pressure off as your offensive line takes pressure off of everything. I mean, you just, it's hard to, to defend against the mobile quarterback. So, um, you know, I think uh, with the offensive line, we're going to see more transfers. Uh, whether Bobby Haskins is going to be uh, the guy that uh, Curtis and Marino Valley hopes he is remains to be seen. But um, I think he's going to be the first of several that uh, USC is going to try to bring in. We had a text message from Billy. Uh, any thoughts on Vic Sooto, um going to Colorado? So that just happened. It might have been today. It was very recently. Um, any thoughts on uh, Vic Sooto? Gerard, how he was a recruiter and uh, kind of coach he was. Uh, decent recruiter. Um, obviously was uh, kind of a catalyst in trying to get some of the guys from the South. You know, he had a couple of defensive linemen there uh, that looked like they were going to commit in Michael Williams and uh, Christian Miller. That didn't happen. Um, I think locally they maybe overlooked some kids. You know, uh, there were some guys that I think uh, they could have recruited locally and they were uh, kind of had their sights set, you know, nationally instead. And, um, you know, a, a younger guy that I think was a, a good recruiter and had a lot of energy and was dynamic. Um, hard to say what kind of coach he was really with the defensive line. You know, development standpoint, it's really hard to look at the defensive coaches or defensive staff and really – have an opinion on that necessarily uh, schematically you could, you know, talk about how they use certain guys and person personnel, but in terms of the actual player development, I don't know. Uh, tough to, to really, to make a comment on that. Um, we'll see going forward again, Jamar King kind of looks like he's going to be the defensive line coach at Oklahoma. He was just the defensive end outside linebackers coach. Um, but previous stops, he has been a defensive line coach. And so he is a very dynamic recruiter. I mean, he is a, big-time recruiter, and a guy that I know uh, other schools have been looking at as well. Um, so that's one thing um, that USC will have is a guy that's going to be able to go out there and was able to lock down some really good uh, commitments for Oklahoma. And again, you know, at that point we're wondering, okay, if he comes over from Oklahoma, is he bringing any of these commitments with him? Um, you had several players there uh, that potentially were going to be on official visits, and it all kind of fell through. But you know what? I mean, again, we have some more room stuff about that that uh, we're going to have, and we'll get into it. This is not a premium podcast, correct? It is not. No. So we can save okay. all that for the well, war We, we yeah. kind of have to save some of that stuff. But, um, uh, yeah, I think um, recruiting-wise, I think USC is going to be uh, in good hands uh, with uh, Jamar Kane if he ends up being the defensive line coach. Erica Duck Country wrote in and said, Ishmael Softshore is much bigger than the typical lineman Alex Grinch uses. Do you think there's a chance – he moves to the offensive line. Probably not. I mean, he's got to get healthy. Like he, we, we haven't seen anything from him. Um, that syndrome, compartmental syndrome that he had is a very strange sort of injury. Um, yeah, I, I think his worth ethic was very much questioned at Alabama. And now, you know, really hasn't done a whole lot at USC because of the injury. 
Um, you know, how motivated is he going to be to get back into things? Uh, questions just really remain. I don't know that he would be up for that. He may just want to transfer again if, uh, you know, he was moved to the offensive line. And But that might be one of those things that, hey, you know, if that's the evaluation and that's what the coaching staff feels, they're going to do it. And if he leaves and it's like, okay, sorry, um, go and take your year and sit out somewhere else and, and transfer because, you know, they need to get guys that uh, they feel like are their guys that they're comfortable with um, at various positions. But that's a very good point. I mean, he, the bigger sort of 315-pound guys are not necessarily uh, the guys that we've seen used in that defense. Um, you know, the defenses that Alex Grinch had at Oklahoma were a bit bigger, obviously, than the defenses that he had uh, at Washington State. But Washington State, he was working with what he could get. You know, and it wasn't even the same when he was at Ohio State for a year and he was co-defensive uh, coordinator with Shiano. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things. You know, we looked at Graham Harrell when he was at North Texas, and it's like, okay, you know, he does all these things at North Texas, so he's just going to come to USC and he's going to do all of those exact same things but just with better players. That's not the way it always works. You know, sometimes coaches go, okay, now I have these different options at personnel. I'm going to do different things. So we kind of have to wait and see. Uh, what Alex Grinch does, but certainly in terms of like the way they use their scheme. Yeah. The mobility thing is definitely a, a big deal. I mean, they sometimes stunt defensive tackles uh, and defensive ends, like multiple gaps over. So you're talking about a guy that's a five technique. And then he's all of a sudden he's, he's twisting into a stunt into like the a gap, which is like, you got to have some lateral mobility to be able to do that. Or you're just going to have an a gap. that's going to be wide open for the running back or whoever. Uh, that might go right through it. So you got to have quickness along that defensive line. So you do have to have guys that are mobile. We got one last one. Um, Justin in downtown LA. So Ryan and Gerard, can you please take us through a typical of official visit? I've heard the players are weighed, x-rayed and measured. Is that true? Who picks up in the airport? Uh, also when and how do schools have a player quote, work out for them? Can a school ask a prospect to come to campus and catch passes, et cetera? Thanks. Justin in downtown LA. Holy cow, there's like a lot to uh, – that's not a rapid-fire uh, <laughs> answer no. to that. I, I, I mean, it's the support staff guys that come and pick you up at the airport uh, with your family, and they get to campus. And, I mean, it's different for every coaching staff as to, you know, how they organize a, an official visit, like what you see first and what have you. But you're going to tour the campuses. You're going to sit down with usually the deans or the – uh, heads of the departments of those those particular um, uh, academic programs that you're interested in, right? So, like, if you're interested in business, they sit down with the business school dean, or they'll sit down with the you know kinesiology or whatever it may be. Um, they go to places out to eat, you know. They'll hit uh, the Rex or, or or whatever. They stay at the JW Marriott. Um, usually, they'll they'll hit the beach. At some point, I think with Lincoln Riley, they were actually in Malibu, which is, is a, a, a little different. Usually with, I think, Clay Helton, they spent most of their time uh, in Manhattan Beach. Um, they go, again, to the various restaurants. They have those you know, points in the itinerary where they meet with their position coaches. So they sit down and they watch film and they go over the depth chart. Um, and then they'll meet with the head coach, usually later, um, afterwards. Um, and uh, sometimes it's the last day. Sometimes it's sooner. Um, I think with Lincoln Riley, something that was different that they met with him a little earlier in the visit where Clay Helton, they tend to 
they used to visit with him um, at, like the Sunday at breakfast. They would actually uh, be with him and, and talk with him there, which I don't know if that was actually done with Lincoln Riley. But again, it was different. You know, these past two weeks at USC was a makeshift staff. They only had like, I don't know, like three or four coaches um, on, on, uh, on, on campus because you had to remember that guys like Jamar Kane, um, Brian Odom, they were still having to be at practice for OU. They were still on staff at OU and coaching at OU. So um, there was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of, you know, the L.A. to, to, to Norman and, and back and forth. Um, you know, they even had to start choice uh, who is going to be the running back coach on campus for that final weekend visit. And then we now know that he's going to end up going to Texas and being the running backs coach. So, yeah, there was a lot of stuff. I don't want to say the itinerary for the last uh, official visit uh, weekend with Lincoln Riley and the staff is, is how it would actually be for USC going forward because it was just, it was a very sort of unique circumstance. Um, but in terms of, yeah, the visit, that's, that's sort of how it goes. They, they go to the, the Coliseum as well. Um, yeah. I, I want to give you like the, the whole itinerary of where they go and, and, you know, times yeah. and, and everything um, that changes, but um, they, they get to see, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just basically trying to get some face time with position coaches, which I think is always the most important sitting down with Lincoln Riley, getting a vibe for the whole staff in a, in a, in a environment that is both on campus and off campus. You know, they go to the restaurants and they hang out and they get to see some sites and everything. Um, and they just get to be around the coaches. And the other thing that was very unique about that final uh, official visit weekend, which was big for USC, there was really no players, you know, on campus that, that knew the new coaching staff. And so, that's obviously a big deal because you have hosts that are on campus. And, and a lot of the kids that we talked to really didn't have a specific host. And I think partly that's just because all these players that are on the you know roster right now, they, they don't really know their future um, if they want to be at USC or not. You know, some of these guys are thinking like, okay, do I, do I want to transfer? Do I want to go? I don't know Lincoln Riley. I don't know this new staff. I don't really know if I fit in the scheme. And so that's kind of a weird thing because – one of the most important aspects of an official visit is usually that off time away from the coaching staff where the recruits can actually pick the brains of the players and say, you know, how is it really being here? How's it really being a student at USC? Is it academically like, what is it really like? What are these coaches really like? Are they really cool? Because, you know, Hey, these coaches are professional salesmen when it comes to the recruiting process. And, you know, they're going to be good at what they do and say the right things. So the kids want to talk to the players because they feel like the players can be a little more real with them. And these players at USC just don't know the coaching staff. So that was like a, an aspect of all of this that um, was really lacking from that last official weekend. And it's going to be lacking even going into January. Um, but at least this new coaching staff should have a little bit of time with uh, the, the players. I don't know what the rules are in terms of how much they can meet with the players and you know how much Josh Hansen can – can sit down with the offensive line and, and kind of say, Hey, listen, this is what I'm about and get some time talking because I think that is sort of a low key, um, it, it, it kind of an underrated thing that can really help USC with recruiting for that February uh, signing day is just the, the, the small bit of relationship that these coaches can build with the players in the roster right now because it, again it will resonate with those recruits on campus to some extent um how comfortable they feel with those with those coaches and and the vibe and the energy of the team going forward that's a huge part in getting some of these guys signed 
All right. Well, good stuff, Gerard. Man, we went a long time uh, on this one. Um, and plenty more to talk about. Plenty more. We didn't even talk about recruiting. And, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about recruiting, but some new offers went out and, you know, still trying to get the most out of the 2022 class. And there's some new transfer offers that have gone out. We got to do another podcast, man. We we got to just you know we'll end this one and then we'll start over and we'll do another two hours. Okay, that sounds good. Um, no, we'll we'll take a little break. We'll do one next week though. But that's good. Like, uh, people have loved when you've been on the show. Uh, I know Keely's a little under the weather, so wish her well. Hopefully she's uh, uh, not COVID, which is good, but she's just been sick a lot. Of, it's been going around. I got a little sick a couple weeks ago too, but. Uh, everybody's been sick with the flu with i mean it's crazy how many people that are, are sick but you know i mean i've been sick a bunch of times i've got the niece and the nephews and the nieces in school she's probably been sick five or six times since <laughs> september so i mean i've been just dodging landmines thinking i probably had covid like two or three times already in yeah. the fall so it, it's yeah it's kind of crazy but you know got to get vaccinated got my booster I do what I can do, man. You you can only you can only control so much. Only only so much you can do. Okay, well we'll we'll end this and we'll save some more for the next one. But thank you, Gerard. Follow him on Twitter at Gmart Live. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Peristyle Podcast. Uh, I know we didn't have much over the last week or so, so we're just trying to get back into the swing of things now. The holidays and stuff are ending. We hope you guys all have a very very happy New Year. And happy hope- New. Happy New Year, everybody, everybody, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.